Welcome to Insights, practical startup advice from founders, leaders, and VCs in an easy-to-consume format. This podcast is created by Angular Ventures, a full-stack, pre-A, VC firm that backs early-stage enterprise and deep tech companies from Europe or Israel that are targeting global category leadership with an emphasis on the U.S. market from day one. These podcasts are taped virtually with a live audience. To join an upcoming session or learn more about the firm and how we operate, find us at angularventures.com. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining. My name is Anne. I'm the head of platform at Angular Ventures, and welcome to our fifth Angular Insights session. We are very lucky today to have Fred Simon from JFrog giving a session on monetizing an open source project. And I will now pass it over to Gil. It's a special honor to have Fred on the call today. Fred is, has been a, a friend to me for many years. I was privileged to be part of the team at Gemini that made the initial investment into JFrog. And I, I remember vividly when I took that to investment committee at Gemini, the first response from some of the people around the table was, Gil, what kind of a moron are you? Don't you know that there's zero money in dev tools? And so I think JFrog has proven that there is money in dev tools. They're doing over $100 million a year. And Fred's ever since been part of my life. And as I set up Angular, became an increasing part of my life and has, has become involved with Angular as what we call an advisory partner, which means that he's part of our firm family. He has upside in the fund and he works quite closely with a number of our portfolio companies and is having a tremendous impact. Fred is, I guess, best described as a software architect, software architect. He lives and breathes this kind of stuff and is probably best known as the founder and as the, sorry, as a co-founder and chief architect of JFrog, which is a company that probably needs no introduction, although Fred will go through what exactly it is. Before founding JFrog, he founded Alpha CSP, which was a Java consulting firm and led that business as the CTO across five global branches. Um, now JFrog is itself a global company with offices in quite a few countries. Very significantly, JFrog is a company for whom open source is a core part of their DNA. Not only is part of JFrog's core architecture, the Artifactory core engine is, is an open source piece of software itself, but JFrog works closely with many other open source projects and companies uh, because distributing those that code and those builds is, is a core part of what JFrog does and contributing back to the open source community is deep in their DNA. And at the same time, JFrog has figured out how to make money from actual customers. So it's a very interesting example of a company for whom open source is, is core to their DNA, it's core to their identity, and yet the fact that that's been so central to them has not stopped them in the least from generating revenue. On, on the contrary, it's it's accelerated that path. So what I found as we're investing, you know, in early stage enterprise software companies, increasingly across many of the companies we invest in, including companies, you know, that you would expect it in, like developer tooling companies, but also companies you would not expect it in. There's increasingly a conversation of what part of what we're doing should we open source. And open source has gone from being a blocker for enterprise adoption to, in many cases, being a driver of enterprise adoption. There are some elements of software that are so critical that if you don't make them open source, it becomes harder and harder for the enterprise to actually adopt them. So this is a super timely topic. I think it's only getting more timely. Uh, let me turn over to Fred, who will take us through his initial thoughts. Thanks, Gil. Nice intro. So hi, everybody. Yeah, so like uh, Gil said, I'm uh, Fred Simon, co-founder of uh, JFrog. Uh, it was actually founded in 2008. And I'm uh, doing open source software, I think, since the JBoss time, since 1999, so more than 21 years of uh, open source and uh, open source participation. And as a chief architect at the beginning, I was uh, for JFrog, we worked hard to uh, set up this uh, dynamic between the open source and the monetization. So 
By the way, for history, this kind of open source uh, talk, I already did it as uh, as panel and uh, and some others. But uh, for you now, I reworked because a lot of the feeling about open source and open source software in the world today changed quite uh, dramatically in the in the last ten years. I mean, there was a lot of uh, evolution, and uh, today it's uh, it's a very different world. So the first thing is that there is really a different story, and uh, so sometimes you came uh, like that. So for uh, JFrog, what uh, we did is that we had an existing open source project and we created a startup to monetize an existing uh, open source uh, project, which was uh, Artifactory, and uh, which was quite uh, popular and we decided to, to try to monetize it. It happened to uh, a lot of um, startups out there and uh, a lot of environments where you actually have the open source uh, software already existing and you try to uh, monetize on top of it. But uh, since there is a lot of uh, success story around this uh, model, there is quite a good amount of uh, startups that start from the beginning deciding, okay, we're going to create our product. They're going to be a core open source uh, piece and they're going to be a commercial. So it's not a freemium model. It's really an open source uh, software model and a free and uh, a payable system. And then there is uh, the last one, the, the part C, which we see more and more today, even with big company or even with a startup that start to have a project, is that you are a full closed source uh, company with a product and you decide to uh, launch uh, an open source and an uh, open source initiative. So to part of your code base, usually launch into uh, some kind of a foundation or just uh, on GitHub and uh, try to uh, launch your uh, OSS project and build uh, on top of it. So depending in which of those uh, three lines you are, you really have different action and different things that you can do. It's really a different uh, world and, and, and the different things. To be frank with you, the first case it used to be the most popular one, the, the case A, and it's the most difficult to monetize. And so it needed to, to grow in success and have a couple of uh, success stories so that uh, B and even C uh, was, was considered in the future. And uh, so the first thing that uh, I want to, to talk about with you, and uh, it came out in, uh, in a lot of the questions, it's not so straightforward. Okay. At the end of the day, what the company wants is to make money out of a product. And what the community and the open community wants is to create a software and create a piece of technology together so that it serves the whole community. And uh, those two forces, whatever you say and whatever you think of, they are kind of fighting each other and, and in, in opposite direction. And it uh, generates a very uh, difficult relationship between a big company that tries to make money and the community uh, that is uh, rolling around uh, the open source software. So when you are in the, in the middle ground, in the B, when you create your company and you decide to create the code as open source, you own the source code uh, top to bottom. You own everything. So it's a lot easier to uh, create the community and create the dynamic uh, that make it true. So you really need to be uh, truthful about the relationship with your community to say, okay, everything that is enterprise, everything that is, uh, for example, high availability or high throughput is going to be uh, enterprise feature and it's not going to be part of the open source. 
or you can decide any kind of uh, uh, connectivity. So usually a SAML connectivity, for example, or all kind of uh, connectivity to uh, Salesforce or any uh, enterprise environment. You may want to uh, put it as enterprise feature and uh, you leave uh, all the open source core and the open source environment on a separate flow. And you can see this uh, dynamic between the uh, open community and the, and the company in all those uh, uh, different blocks. So I kind of classify them here in, uh, in this uh, slide. So the big one, the Google, the Amazon, and the IBM, usually what they open source, they don't want to make money out of it anyway. And so it becomes really, really difficult for, for us and for any kind of startup and environment to try to make money when one of those guys comes out with a, a huge uh, technical force and huge uh, technical energy uh, to push forward uh, projects that basically they don't really uh, matter for them. The only thing that they want is just to bring uh, more. Uh, so IBM, it's mainly Red Hat now with the Red Hat OpenShift that, um, that we are talking about. They just want to bring people to their cloud, bring people to their platform and uh, increase the usage. And the actual product and the actual open source product is not really a mon directly a money generating uh, environment. So the Docker, Puppet, Chef, and Jenkins are more the thing where the open source project is very powerful, is actually fully usable. You can do really a lot with the open source software uh, itself with the free version. And so uh, going to the enterprise version is usually, so it, it proved to be for, for all of them, it's a decision that is not easy to push uh, internally in a lot of companies. And they suffered it's quite clear. They all suffered uh, greatly trying to monetize their uh, open source project. Red Hat uh, is the first one to actually actually make quite a large amount of money out of the open source uh, software with uh, JBoss and now Canonical. Canonical is Ubuntu. I don't know. <laughs> Some of you don't know. So over there, it's um, the story is more about uh, securing. The customer wants to have the security that uh, the open source software is um, running all the time for them. And the last one is uh, more so the JFrog story, the Neo4j, the ElasticDB, the MongoDB. All of them have uh, an open source based. So for JFrog, it's Artifactory. And um, out of it, they create enterprise version and enterprise solution on top of an open source uh, software core, which is free and open. And uh, they kind of manage to uh, uh, make money out of it. Uh, the only one that is a little bit uh, is Neo4j, but uh, they are doing okay. The other three, uh, Elastic, Mongo, and JFrog, they are all making really good and um, doing really well with an open source core and, uh, and some uh, things on top of it. So as you can see, depending on those three, what I was uh, talking about uh, uh, before is that when the open source software is already existing and it's already out there and it already has a community and you want to monetize it, which is kind of what happened with Docker, Puppet Chef and Jenkins, it uh, can be very, so Jenkins, it's CloudBees, it uh, can be very, very difficult, okay? Because you kind of uh, compete with yourself. So the JFrog, Neo4j, Elastic and Mongo, it's a little bit in between, but at the end of the day, they fully, all the company fully own 
the open source code base. At the end of the day, they uh, ingest all the um, pull requests and all the, the things. The open source software is fully managed by those uh, companies. So I want to talk a little bit about the uh, JFrog story. I think it uh, can be quite interesting for, for a lot of you. So the Artifactory open source was launched at the end of 2006. So basically it got successful in 2007. And at the end of 2007, myself and my co-founder, we decided to create JFrog, which was founded in May 2008 to monetize it. And uh, it stayed open source all the way to the end of 2009 when we launched the professional version. Until then, we were offering uh, professional services and support uh, on top of the open source. And so the project was existed before the company, before JFrog. The Artifactory open source project existed before. And uh, so we own, I mean, we were all the committer of the open source. So we kind of own the, the open source project completely at JFrog. And uh, the community around the project the community of users was quite big, but the community of committers and guys that push back was quite limited. So we could control very, very easily the, the pull request and, and the flow inside the, the actual code base. And so we uh, decided to create an open source core, the Artifactory core, and on top of it, a bunch of extensions and plugins and uh, features on top of the core uh, that will be closed source and that uh, will uh, need to be uh, paid for. And the first thing that we thought about is said the easiest way to actually make money out of an open source project is actually the cloud. So it was 2009, the term SaaS software as a service didn't exist, but still we uh, decided to, we were the first one to know how to deploy this uh, application on the cloud infrastructure, how to grow it, how to scale it, how to monitor it, how to make it uh, reliably run. And so basically we said that has value with the software, with the actual hardware running, and we're going to sell Artifactory open source as a service on our, our cloud platform and our cloud environment. So we were cloud first, which was uh, quite lucky for us, but uh, the market was not cloud first in 2009. Today, uh, the, the cloud uh, and the cloud is growing uh, a lot more uh, rapidly than uh, uh, bring your own license and, and manage your own uh, server yourself. But uh, at the time, it took a lot more uh, time and energy. And so we still make most of our uh, uh, revenue out of the uh, self-hosted and uh, bring your, your own license environment. But um, still, this uh, open source core, that it's the same open source core that is running in our cloud. And so, and on top of it, we have, of course, the, the cloud version, which is basically the exact same version than the self-hosted on-prem version. We are one of the rare companies to have the exact same version in SaaS and on-prem in, uh, in the environment. And this really, really helped the adoption and the dynamic uh, of the project. So if you can create an open source core and create a payable feature that makes sense, and this is where it was quite painful and it's still painful over the year to decide which feature goes into uh, the free version, which version goes into the paid version, or now we have the enterprise version or even the enterprise plus uh, platform version. So we have uh, the different packages. 
which feature match, uh, watch uh, profile and which uh, package is a discussion that you con- you need to have continuously. And um, you need to be clear and uh, you need to find a logic that makes sense or uh, you will find yourself with the community and with the interaction with the, with the world in, in a problematic situation. And, uh, so that's uh, basically the Jeffrox truth. This is basically the transition to the product strategy. So in terms of a product strategy for... Uh, it's kind of uh, with insight. So I'm providing you this as experience from what we, we did. There is really three different space where uh, you can leverage the free versus paid. And uh, depending of the three acts, so the users, the backend or the API, you really have different ways of making the, the free versus pay differentiator and to make sense to your users and to make sense to the world and to the community. So to be frank with you, a lot of what we see out there is backend. Okay, so you have a core uh, backend environment, uh, which is open source, and you try to add a feature on top of it. And uh, it's actually the most uh, complicated environment where uh, to make the difference because you don't want, uh, okay, I'm going to make an open source version that is slow, or I want to make an open source version that uh, has limited scale in the way that basically when uh, the product starts to be popular, it crashes or it stops working or, or things like that. Or uh, for sure, you don't want to create, okay, an open source version that is unreliable. Um, so you end up having a core backend environment that uh, needs to have clear functionality in terms of uh, answering the workload and answering the uh, the environment. And today in the microservices, Kubernetes environment, auto-scaling system, it gets very, very hard to do a limiting factor in terms of usage and usage scale. So you need to find features. You really need to find what are the features that the customer will be willing to pay without me uh, limiting the, the free version to scale and, and scaling uh, environment. So when you are in the UI on the top one, it's a lot easier, okay? You can say, okay, the open source version has limited uh, user interface uh, functionality or uh, simple environment for uh, single users. You cannot do multi-tenant or things like that makes total sense. And so, What's nice also in the UI environment is that we did that. We thought that it will be a problem, by the way. I think we are the first one. I never saw an open source project doing something like that. But we put teaser in our open source software UI about what are the enterprise features and what are the professional features that you can see. So when you go to the Artifactory UI of the open source version, you can actually see what are the features that you're missing in the environment. So here, usually, it's a lot easier to, to set up this, uh, this difference. At the API level, here, it's a usually full chunk of your API that you can decide to make part of the professional version or the payable version or not. So uh, a promotion system, uh, population isolation, so when you want to difference between departments and things like that, all kind of uh, extra permission feature, uh, distributed tokens, and uh, all kind of high-level feature that are usable normally only in high uh, professional 
enterprise environment. And so the way to do that is, uh, like I said before, the SaaS and the support is also uh, really, really important for a lot of our customers. At the end of the day, we can see it with Red Hat when uh, Oracle uh, tried to sell uh, Red Hat Enterprise by themselves, with Elastic when Amazon is still selling Elastic and Elastic environment. Customers still like to talk directly to the, to the writer of the open source software and to have direct support with the people that knows and people that can react fast uh, to the environment. And so if you can provide this uh, high-level support, so you need to know, of course, your open source software. And uh, if you can also create a big uh, platform and a pluggable platform on top of your open source, then there is a, a huge amount of possibility to actually uh, create a payable feature on top of your system. So I want to end uh, with this slide of the business model. I have to say, when you see uh, uh, the CloudBees story or even the, the Puppet story or even Docker story, it's company that ended up competing with their own product, with their own open source product, okay? And you, because you have uh, tech people inside companies, they are really good with Docker, they are really good with Jenkins. They are, so your actual champion inside the company, the, uh, the people that should push for uh, CloudBees or for Docker Enterprise or for uh, Puppet uh, Enterprise version, actually are proud of themselves to be able to do all this stuff based on the open source uh, base itself without the help from the company itself. So you start to have this uh, annoying uh, situation where you're competing with your own product and you're competing with your own community. Okay, And it's usually because you didn't make it clear and truthful about the separation, about what you decide to make it payable and what you decide to make it free and to stick to it and to grow with it and to keep uh, going on with it. With CloudBees, they, they keep pushing enterprise feature back to the open source because of the pressure and the environment and, and all this. At the end of the day, it's quite clear that there is no escape. The places where software is running today uh, need to be open. Uh, the, the openness of an open source software uh, in terms of uh, connectivity, deployment capability, and, uh, and visibility is uh, unprecedented. And so it's a huge, huge uh, growth engine. If done correctly, it's a really a, a killer feature. But uh, like uh, we saw in, in a lot of companies, it can also kill your business model and, and kill your ability to actually make money. So you have to be um, conscient about it. You have to look at it. And uh, there is a way, like uh, all those companies prove it, to make it work. And there is a way to not make it work. So while we get that ready, Fred, one, one aspect of this, I think you, sort of, you just hinted on is... is this is a very sort of a one-way street, right? Once you make something open source, uh, you can't go back. And so people are making decisions, product managers are making decisions that are going to, they're going to have to live with those decisions for the rest of time, basically, right? Can you walk us through, and, then, and then I guess your, your roadmap that you're going to build as a company, you're going to layer that onto this dividing wall that you've sort of divined, you've decided between what's free and what's not, or what's open source and what's not. Can you take us through maybe a specific example of a feature decision, whether that's in JFrog or some other company where like, can you illustrate what those 
because these are not easy decisions, right? And I'm sure that there are probably violent debates about whether a certain feature should be open sourced or not. Can you help us understand what those debates are like and what yep. framework people should use to think about them? So the one I'm going to get one example. It's uh, one of the main features of Artifactory is the ability to add properties and metadata to uh, your binaries and your uh, your application so to know where it is and, and what's going on with it. And so it's a really, really powerful feature that enables enterprise to uh, organize uh, their binary flow and uh, organize their, their development and uh, software delivery lifecycle. And we started by saying, okay, it's, it's an enterprise feature and it, and it needs to be in an enterprise environment. But uh, very rapidly, the, the basis of uh, being able to add metadata to binary was quite important. And so we moved it to open source. But what we did is that we moved the base and the core feature to the open source. You can add uh, metadata and, and with the API and, and watched it and, and things like that. But uh, any kind of extra processes on this metadata and, and environment is only part of uh, the enterprise version. So, yeah, and it's like we started also to do community edition for Conan, for C, C++ developer. We started to offer the free Artifactory uh, community edition. We offer now the JFrog container registry. So it's a free version of uh, Artifactory for Docker. So the JFrog container registry, it's, uh, you can do all your Docker and Helm uh, feature in the free version. So yeah, the, the basically the, this is a discussion that you need to have. And uh, for example, one thing that is uh, uh, saving all the, your binary file to S3, okay? So it was a discussion, but that's clearly an enterprise feature. That's something you want to keep uh, those files for a long time in the back end and, and distribute it. So we made it part of the enterprise version. Okay. So us, for us, it's OSS. It's a, a developer, a small developer, a small developer team that can get uh, for with the open source version or the free versions. Professional version, it's a small team with all kinds of uh, different languages, but a single server, not, no high av uh, availability and, and, and environment. And enterprise is... Uh, high availability, auto-scaling, and the push to uh, uh, all kinds of uh, deployment environment, uh, connection to SAML and uh, SSO environment and all this kind of stuff. So we try to, uh, to stick to those system and those uh, environment, but it's never finished. It's not an easy decision. And uh, yeah, we are always uh, willing to... But the thing is, by the way, you cannot uh, go back. Okay, once you have a feature in open source, you cannot decide, oh, no, now I'm going to put it in enterprise. So feature, uh, by the way, it's like the car industry. Uh, I like to compare it to the car industry. You know, you start with uh, automatic drive was only in luxury car, and then it went down to, to everybody. It's a little bit the same. We have a bunch of questions piling up. So one, one last question I want to ask before we open it up. From a sales perspective, when you think about this from what the impact is of open source features on selling, is it something that, can you talk a little bit about what, what that means there? I think there, there's cases I've encountered where it seems like open source is some kind of, it, it greases the wheels for sales in some interesting ways. Can yep. you talk about what kind of feedback you guys get from your sales force on, on these issues and, and how you've thought about that? It, it used to be an interesting discussion. I, uh, today, most company knows the drill and, uh, and understand uh, the difference and understand the value of uh, open source software for uh, 
some kind of escrow kind of environment. So when you are small, like uh, a small startup, uh, like we were, and trying to get huge deal with the big companies, and they said, okay, if you disappear, what what do we do? So the code is there. You can just take it and and, and continue with it. So that that was kind of helpful for for uh, for a sales process. But uh, today, the open source model it helps marketing. It helps the the penetration. It helps people decide. Yeah, basically, you start talking to people. We at JFrog, by the way, we do like you said, uh, more than hundred million a year. It's only inside sales. Okay, we have nobody calling and doing cold call, call and trying to to go to to customer or whatever. It's everybody just already used the product and everybody said, okay, I want to do, I want to use the the enterprise version of the of this product. Okay, so that's for me the number one uh, reason for uh, for an open source uh, uh, tool is the marketing kind of, uh, you put, at the end of the day, we are uh, creating great tech and uh, great technology that nobody uses is kind of uh, depressing. So this is why an open source software is really, really good is that you make sure that a lot of people actually play with your product. You get really good feedback. You get, uh, so there is some people that say you have 1 million people doing QA on your product. I don't like it. It's not the way we roll. We want to, to deliver quality stuff. But at the end of the day, it's kind of true also that you have a lot of people interacting with your software, a lot more than anything you can think of if you were a full, full close to So thank you, Fred. So we're now going to turn it over to the audience for questions. So yeah. the first question we'll have is we'll be joined by Gilad. So Gilad, if you could please introduce yourself and then feel free to ask away. Hi, uh, how are you, Fred? Um, uh, I'm Gilad. I've been at four startups, two made an exit, and I enjoy the startup world. And, and I was extremely curious to hear your talk. Thank you very much for it, because uh, thinking about you know uh, future startups and the open source model, uh, you said two things which really struck me. And one is, uh, I know, for example, there is a trend, like, for example, MongoDB, are slightly stepping away from the open source model and coming up with licenses. And, and the claim is that cloud providers uh, take advantage of open source in order to take all the value for themselves. So how have you protected yourself from that? And would you recommend that you know the Free Software Foundation and so forth change open source licenses to allow for more protection uh, versus cloud providers? Or how would you suggest to protect yourself versus cloud mm -hmm. providers? Then the other yeah. question is, uh, what is ownership? So you, you said that it's important to own your code base, and that yeah. sounds very interesting. But what does it really mean to own your code base in an open source world? How did you pull that trick off, if you understand? So, well, uh, ownership is basically uh, uh, most of the committer and most of the people that can do pull requests are part of your company. Uh, okay. Basically, that's uh, that's the, the main thing. Docker, for example, was like that. And when Docker was created, most of the money they raised was to accept pull requests. And they spent most of their energy validating and accepting pull requests uh, from the community. So they own the Docker uh, code base. You see, you, you saw all the mess they did with Moby and all this kind of stuff. So it is kind of a double edge. The only one that can really not own their code base are the, the big provider, okay, the, the Microsoft, the Google, and, and so on. If you are a startup and you don't own the actual uh, open source project, you don't uh, really control the, the, where it goes and what it does and uh, how the community uh, reacts, 
you kind of have nothing to show for you, uh, for yourself. So in terms of uh, protection, Neo4j, for example, protected themselves very, very strongly. So they, they, they put uh, AGPL right from the beginning, the version 3, and uh, they were really, really strict about uh, the cloud provider not using their, their code base for, for doing that. And uh, it really, I think, it slowed down their adoption quite uh, dramatically. And for me, when you see Elastic or even Mongo, I don't know. Uh, for me, the, the first one, by the way, it's Oracle, the fight between Oracle and Red Hat. At the end of the day, today, software changed so fast, you're not really paying for a piece of software. You're paying for the ability of this software to be updated and to match what is needed for the, for the future and what is needed even for, for today. Uh, the, the speed of innovation and the speed at which you, you need to move forward uh, is, is critical. And so whenever I see even with, uh, with Amazon, uh, when they do that for, for an open source project or a, a different environment, they cannot really do it on the Mongo uh, code base. Okay? They, they have to really create their own Mongo or their own Elastic and, and, and so on. And it became a little bit different. And then the developer don't have the same experience back and forth. So I don't know. For me, it's still proven. We still need to prove that, uh, that it's a risk. And I'm quite sure that Elastic and Mongo, basically for me, I still bet that Elastic and Mongo will, uh, will thrive in this uh, new environment. So we'll see. For us, it's uh, mind the gap. Keep the keep like I said. Uh, keep innovating faster than anything they can do. Uh, we support uh, thirty different packages. Uh, all the other one they support three to four. Uh, we support multi cloud, which no one multi git repo multi. So we we integrate with more stuff. We develop more features. Uh, we react faster to our customer. We are listening to our customer a lot more than uh, any kind of Amazon uh, guy can can think of. So yeah. at, at the end of the day, it's, um, it becomes a, a, a business fight more than a technical fight, this kind of environment. Thanks. That's a fascinating answer that I couldn't give to myself. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. Awesome. Now we'll be joined by Chor. Chor, if you could please introduce yourself. Hey, guys. Uh, I'm the CEO of uh, Testery, and we're an uh, early stage startup developing a, a full testing tool. And my question is, we're starting now to raise money, and most of the VCs are saying, hey, uh, show us uh, how much people are willing to pay for this, yada, yada. Going open source, that's one uh, a definitely different route. How would you position it, you know, in terms yeah. of how to approach VCs and, and, you know, how to tell this type of story? Aye, aye, aye. That's a very, very good question. So since we are in a VC talk, I'm not going to uh, talk uh, badly about... Uh, uh, when we tried to raise money at the very beginning of uh, JFrog, for info, uh, one of the VC that I will not name told us, I don't understand you. You have 3,000 servers out there to big companies that are using your open source version. Just close it, uh, make it only uh, uh, not open source, you will lose 90% of your user, but hey, here, I gave you already uh, 300 new customers that you didn't have before because 10% will stay. I hope this kind of VC don't exist anymore. I can tell you that uh, yeah, the, the VC market shift and uh, is not like that, but it's true that you need to prove 
that you have the ability to uh, monetize your uh, open source and your uh, open source version base. Usually when you start to have a discussion with a customer and the customer like the open source version and like the environment, I mean, I, I have, this is the natural direction of any kind of successful open source uh, project is that to have a company that back it. Okay. You want someone to talk to. If you rely as a company on an open source software, piece of software, and it's kind of critical, even it doesn't have to be mission critical for your production, but it's kind of critical for what you're doing. The ability to sign a contract with a bunch of people on the other side that will be with you and that you trust to be with you to bring this piece of software where you need it to be for your uh, good uh, uh, running of the of the company is uh, highly highly valuable and uh, and a lot of companies are, are willing to do that and are really really happy to do it so you don't even have when you are at this stage at the very early stage of open source like i said jfrog we for a year and a half we run like that we had only the open source we didn't have professional version and professional feature we just had those discussions with the customer that were really saying, okay, Artifactory becomes critical. Okay, if Artifactory is down, my uh, developer need to go back home. I'm, uh, so this kind of uh, uh, discussion started before we had the, the, the professional version. And then you can, once you start the discussion, they would say, but this feature is critical for me. And you said, okay, that's a professional feature. And you develop this feature for them. So then it depends on your architecture. This is where the software architecture is very uh, important. Today with microservices, it's, if we had microservices uh, 12 years ago when we started JFrog, wow, I will have been, uh, but uh, we didn't have, we had so uh, Java architecture and Java API and uh, Java pluggable modules. But uh, with the microservices architecture, you can say, okay, this is a new microservices that I will add to my system. And uh, it's a professional feature and it works. And that's it. I answered your question? Yes, thank you. I think so. Okay. Good luck. <laughs> thank you. Fred, we got a question from Dean and he was asking, how do you approach building a product on top of an OSS, uh, which wasn't created or managed by your company? That's high flying circus without a net. That's very, very uh, uh, dangerous uh, job. So for me, if you don't manage to even have one committer or to have good pull request and good relationship with the, the people managing the OSS, you are really, it's become really, really difficult and really hard. So what you can do is professional services. So we, by the way, Alpha CSP, which was Java, we were the JBoss, the JBoss guy in Israel. So we were deploying, managing, maintaining, and, and supporting JBoss in Israel. So it was an open source project, but we had contract with the JBoss, uh, the, the company, and our knowledge of the open source environment. But we, we never had the chance to change, change the code base or do... Uh, we, we were working together on debugging stuff and things like that, but we didn't do a, a pull request or environment. So if you want to stay at the service level, it's okay, but if you really want to do a full support and plugins, and even if you use an open source platform and uh, you, you do stuff on top of it. So, I mean, if it's Kubernetes, for example, for sure, go, go for it. I mean, it's a big open source. It's, it's the Kubernetes platform or Linux or, or things like that. It's, it's not a question anymore. It's, uh, 
it's such a big open source project. But uh, even if you go down to uh, uh, some people I saw who start to do Istio uh, on top of all kind of uh, different uh, successful project, open source project, it's, um, I don't know, create a product on top, uh, another open source project on top of it, maybe that may be successful, but um, it, it makes... Um, makes it hard for me to, to think about a way to monetize something like that. So we actually did get um, Ori's question uh, as a pre-submitted one, and he was just wondering about the if and the how to open source. I guess this is a very general yeah. question, but if you could share any insights on that. Yeah, so it's uh, usually, uh, I imagine the question is because you already have a closed source product that is actually quite successful that you already managed to sell. And uh, you decide, should I open source or not? So one of the main thing is uh, if your product is part of the runtime, of a production runtime, and it becomes kind of a mission critical. And so you have big, big company that's going to say, okay, this is a piece of software that is developed by this startup in uh, some kind of a country that is far away. And uh, I, even if I have a contract with them or whatever, but what they are doing is going to run in my uh, runtime critical environment. It's hard. It's a very, very tough decision to take. I mean, and um, usually this is where you said, okay, the part that's going to actually run the runtime part uh, usually can be quite core and can be quite small can be open source. And usually you open source this and then you remove this uh, bottleneck and you remove this planter and you, you deploy, you uh, enable customer to accept the open source uh, software inside their runtime environment and, and they have observability and they can monitor it. And then you sell all the enterprise feature, which is everything that goes around it how stuff goes into it, uh, how you test, how you be, how, everything that goes around this core and core business and core uh, system. So that's usually uh, a big reason to open source. When to open source, either so like, uh, like for us right from the beginning and you, you build on top of it if you, if you can. And or it's when you start to see that uh, you need a huge boost in adoption you have a really good product uh, that uh, people love, but uh, you can see that the amount of uh, people using it is way, way below what it should be. And so you, you see that, uh, I mean, a successful open source uh, software product out there in terms of uh, adoption is just multiple order of magnitude more than anything you can do with a, with a closed source or, or a closed source version. So then you, the problem here is that it really changed your business model. It really changed your, the dynamic of your company. It really changed a lot, a lot of things that you're doing. You need to start to manage a community. You need to start to... So usually you need to raise money to go open source. So it costs a lot. It costs a lot to go open source. And uh, you need to have your story clear and you need to have the separation, like I said between what is free and what is not well messaged and well accepted by the, by the community you're reaching out. But what's nice in this environment that you're going to own the open source project for sure because you're the one actually launching it and creating it, so, so it helps. There is one question for Alberto Perdomo that I see here about uh, the uh, cloud uh, and uh, 
the, the fact that the SaaS version and the self-hosted version are the same and that uh, the enterprise deal cannibalization. So yes, it happened. Uh, I have to be, to be clear with you. It's the, the best story about it is uh, uh, Trello, I think, and, uh, and Uber. So Uber was doing all the phone system and the phone answering and the phone dispatching and all this kind of stuff with Trello or Tirelio, I never know how to pronounce this name. And so they grew with them and they grew and grew and they, they were really happy with the software and really happy, but they were paying SaaS. And uh, they ended up five years ago, I think it was four, four years ago, four or five years ago, paying $60 million per year of SaaS cost uh, to Trello. So the CTO went to his uh, team and said, uh, can you do the same for $5 million per year? And uh, yeah, they said, yeah, of course. And so this is the main issue of uh, big environment and big SaaS environment. So what's going on in our world today, me, the way I see it is that every software that we create and everything that we produce out there has exponential growth. Okay. And uh, if you are successful and if people are using it, they are actually using you exponentially. Okay. At the end of the day, it's zero and one and it's bytes and it's software and it needs to grow exponentially. This is the proof of success. And so if you put a linear pricing on an exponential growth, you're going to kill your customer. Okay. There is no customer that's going to pay you exponentially. So you need to find a way to uh, align your pricing so you don't have to do log. I mean, there is all kind of, um, I'm chief data scientist now at JFrog. So I really, really like to play. This is what I love to play with. So the logarithmic pricing, and by the way, the cloud vendor, they have this logarithmic pricing on an exponential growth kind of environment. And uh, if you play like that, you can really grow with your customer. You can still have really good uh, cohort growth uh, of your customer base and keep the relationship but uh, you need to make sure that uh, you don't uh, kill them uh, with more and more uh, usage. But it's true that there is a point where uh, the customer, we had many customers that are multi-million dollar deal in a SaaS uh, contract. And at some point they said, okay, we can take, but it's okay. I mean, it's, uh, it's part of the deal. At least uh, they, are still part, they are still our customer and they are using our licenses and they have some people that we train and we support. And, uh, as long as they are using us and they are a customer of us, and I'm, I'm, I'm okay with it. Today, by the way, on our cloud platform, we have 2.5 petabyte going in and out every month. So we, we have this growth and we see customers that are really, really growing rapidly like that. And it kind of makes sense that sometimes they're going to manage it by themselves and it's okay. I think it's better than, than completely losing them anyway. <laughs> cool. That's Fred, okay. thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thanks to all of you for your questions. We should highlight a few things. One is that the videos of all these sessions are available on our YouTube channel. Uh, you can Google it pretty easily. They're also available on our site. We have two upcoming sessions that are pretty cool. We've got Roy Ranani, uh, founder and uh, president of Chorus AI, which is a sales optimization tool. He's going to be talking about how to sell over Zoom, which I think is particularly relevant in the current time. And then we've got Francesca Danzi, who is a former chief client officer, Tori Birch, and she's going to be talking about the future of retail and what that might mean for tech companies selling into retail. And again, thank you all for joining us, and thank you to Fred for everything you do. Um, really appreciate it, and uh, see many of you next time. Thank you.